Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together, you and I are on a mission, and we are working to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. If this is your very first episode, I want to say welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. And if you're returning, welcome back. You know how much I love you and appreciate you for coming back week after week. And today's guest is Mo Gaudet. And I'm just going to say it right out of the gate that this was absolutely, absolutely, hands down, one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. And I really believe to my core that this episode you're about to listen to can absolutely change your life and the world. And you'll see why in a bit. Mo's content has already transformed my life. And so it was an honor to get to hang out with him today. So I don't say that lightly. I've recorded lots of interviews and I appreciate every single one of them. But of course, you're going to have some that stand out. And this is one of them. So after a 30 year career in tech serving is the chief business officer at Google X, Google's moonshot factory of innovation, Mo has made happiness his primary topic of research, diving deeply into literature and conversing on the topic with some of the wisest people in the world. In 2014, motivated by the tragic loss of his son, Ali, Mo began pouring his findings into his international best-selling book, Solve for Happy, Engineer Your Path to Joy. His mission is to help 1 billion people become happier and 1 billion happy is his moonshot attempt to honor Ali by spreading the message that happiness can be learned and shared to 1 billion people. In 2020, Mo launched his chart-topping podcast, Slow Mo, a podcast with Mo Gaudat, a weekly series of extraordinary interviews that explores the profound questions and obstacles we all face in the pursuit of purpose and happiness in our lives. His latest book is Scary Smart, The Future of Artificial Intelligence and How You Can Save Our World, a roadmap detailing how humanity can ensure a symbiotic coexistence with AI when it inevitably becomes a billion times smarter than we are. A lot, I know. (laughs) Super excited to introduce you to Mo. And in this episode, I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, Mo shares how he was literally the societal, um, emphasis on the word societal, definition of success. He was the chief business officer at Google X, and he was so good at trading, he could literally print money. He had 16 cars in his garage and was absolutely miserable. (laughs) So you find out more about what he did to pull himself out of his misery. Number two, you're gonna find out why Moe's most prized possession is a container of unopened hand cream. And number three, Mo reveals his happiness equation as we dive into specific strategies you can use to increase your happiness. And we also go into his other actionable takeaways, including the eraser test, the happiness flowchart, and the interrogation. And you're also going to find out what you being happy, yes, you, has to do with AI and literally saving humanity. Mo is probably the smartest human I've ever met, and he just oozes love and kindness. You'll probably pick it up from his calming voice. I think he has an incredibly calming voice. But like I said, this may be one of the most important episodes I've ever published, so listen closely because it'll it'll absolutely change your life, and Mo's ideas have absolutely changed mine. So please enjoy this incredible conversation with Mo Gaudat. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mo, wonderful to have you here, my friend. Same here. 
It's it's very early on your side. I apologize. I woke you up this early. It's all good. I've been looking forward to this all week. And I, if I can wake up just a few minutes early to, to hang out with you, it, it makes me very, very happy. So yeah, no, no, um, no, no pressure on my side. So now I'm like, okay, I really have to make this good. <laughs> yeah, it was intentional. That's what it was. I just wanted to make you feel bad, Mo, so that you showed up for me. That's really what it was. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. So let's, I want to start with an incredibly beautiful story about one of your most prized possessions. So a small unopened plastic container of hand cream. Can you tell us the story behind why this is one of your oh, most prized wow. possessions? Oh, you, you jump right in. I uh, uh, was blessed uh, with an amazing, amazing young man who was my son, uh, Ali. And Ali was a very unusual, uh, unusual person in every possible way. He was very quiet, very peaceful, very wise, very zen. Uh, I think since he was zero, years old, honestly. And Ali, um, you know, as he grew older, he became more, uh, more resembling of those kinds of sages, if you want, that you see in the streets, uh, you know, giving up on their, all of their possessions and just, you know, dedicating their lives to the journey. Uh, he was a student in Northeastern University in Boston. I went to visit him one day and, uh, you know, I had uh, his mother and his sister with me and we decided to go somewhere to have uh, breakfast. And we, uh, as we're walking in, Ali says, guys, give me a few minutes. And he literally disappears and then pops up as we're sitting next to the window waiting for breakfast. Uh, uh, you know, he, he approaches a homeless person and uh and he simply sits next to her it's not like he was giving her some money he literally you know is talking to her for a few minutes and then he sits next to her back against the wall like she is and they keep chatting his breakfast is getting cold and he just continues to chat and obviously um you know he he uh after a while realized he had to come so he gets up he empties his pockets, gives her the money that he has, and then walks away. And she literally jumps out of, you know, of her place and uh, taps him on the back and hugs him. And then she runs back to her place, searches in her bag and finds a tiny little thing that she runs back and gives it to him. And he, in his typical way, would go like, no, 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 it's okay. You know, I don't need it. And she insists that she ta he takes it. So he comes back. And that little thing was that tiny uh, tin box of uh, lip balm, and um, and in my in my perception, I think it was unopened. So in my perception, it must have been like her celebration thing, you know, like one day I will really treat myself so much, and I will open that lip balm and use it. Uh, but she gave it to him because of how wonderful he was. Uh, Ali, of course, as you can imagine, some of our listeners may know, uh, went through a, um, a, a routine surgical procedure uh, when he was 21 and a half, and uh, it went wrong, uh, and uh, we lost him. And so uh, after we lost him, uh, I'm, I'm not into material possessions myself anymore, but after we lost him, that one thing uh, that he left uh, behind that I felt was his most valuable possession became mine. And that was that uh, little tin box, basically. Hmm. 
It's so beautiful. Do you keep it on your desk? Do you keep it in your pocket with you at all times? Is it just as a reminder every time? I don't actually. So I I went through a very interesting stage. Ali left us around six and a half years ago now. Um, And I, Ali also had um, um, little, what do you call them? Gaugings? Very tiny gaugings for his, yeah, yeah. But you know, not the big ones, but tiny. And, uh, and, you know, I, when, after he left us, I took one and his mother took the other and I used to wear it as a pendant, uh, my whole life, my, my whole, all the time, actually, after, after he left. And, and, uh, and one day I forgot it in an, in a hotel and I actually completely panicked. Like I almost wanted to die. Because, you know, it was his and it always touched his skin. And I really clearly was very, very attached to it. And uh, and somehow when, you know, right, I, I called the hotel and the hotel said they had it. So we arranged for it to be shipped to me. But then, but then I sat in that airplane and I uh, wondered if that was his intention at all. You know, this, my son, the way I knew him, wouldn't be attached to anything. And, and, you know, the whole idea of being so attached to some piece of metal because it represented my son uh, started to, to, to be an interesting thought in my head because, honestly, it doesn't represent my son. What represents my son is the beautiful love we had between us, the beautiful connection we had between us, you know, and, and all of the amazing times we spent together, all of the jokes, all of the laughs, all of the things that he taught me. And none of it is represented by that piece of metal. Okay. And in a very interesting way, I started to ask myself, you know, if you're holding on to that piece of metal, that's not really your son. Your whole, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm simply always going to love him, always going to miss him with or without that piece of metal. So I actually keep them now, uh, all of the little things I kept four or five of his things. I keep them now in my, uh, you know, in my drawer, basically. I sometimes look at them and celebrate him and them, but most of the time they're, he's in my heart. He's not in my, on my chest in appendage. Hmm. I love that. Let's talk a little bit more about Ali's mission, the, the, the task that he assigned to you. So it was one of your last interactions with him, but he brought you all together, you and your family, from what I understood. And he said something to you that obviously led to a ripple effect that's being created all over the world. And part of the reason why we're hanging out today and part of the reason why the book was written, but would love for you to share what the task was that he gave you. Yeah, that was... Uh... So Ali, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, you know, I, I, I believe he was very wise. So, uh, you know, wise people don't speak much. And Ali really didn't speak much at all. He, he either joked and he was hilarious. He was really funny. Uh, but when he spoke seriously, he, he would say four to eight words at most. That's, that's it. You, you would talk to Ali about something serious for half an hour, you're blabbering away and he's sitting there listening and asking questions. And then he would simply say four words that would change your life. Okay. And, and he had that ability to hold himself from talking somehow. I don't, I don't understand how he was like that, but anyway, uh, never seen him speak, uh, uh, you know, for as long as he did that day, it was four days before it was two days before he died. And he, uh, we went out to lunch and uh, Ali spoke for 40 minutes straight. 
uh, nonstop. He would look at each of us. It was me, his mother, and his sister, and uh, and he would look each at each of us in the eyes. Wouldn't you know look uh, elsewhere, and he would speak about all of the things that he loved about that person. He would uh, say how grateful he was to have me in his life and the things that I taught him and the things that he, you know, appreciated about me. It was very touching, really. Um, and at the time, we were like, that's so kind of him. Huh? We didn't know that it was almost as if he's, you know, those old grandfathers before they die dictating their wills. And and I and it was because he would then, after speaking to each of us nonstop for five, 10 minutes, making us almost cry from how kind and generous he is, he would say, but there are a couple of things I need you to change. And from me, uh, he simply said, uh, Papa, you should never stop working, uh, uh, but I need you to start working on things that connect to your heart a little more often, Okay. And, you know, you don't maybe know me if people are listening, but this was spot on, spot on. This was exactly, so I, I was at the time chief business officer of Google X. It was extremely successful. I had started 20 businesses or co-founded 20 businesses by then. And, uh, you know, I had been seriously considering retiring because honestly, corp the corporate world and the business world is not the most pleasant unless you're blinded by it. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, my entire life, I counted on my left brain. I was highly analytical, very mathematical, very, very shrewd and very, you know, driven. And, uh, and yeah, I was considering retiring and he would say, don't ever stop working, but do things that count on your heart a little more often was completely the starting point of where I am in life today. So, or everything that I've done since then, you know, it took me time, of course, to leave my job at Google, uh, you know, and and uh, and hand over and all of that. But all I've done since then has been to spread happiness, which is his message, and it has been completely from the heart. I, you know, I, I, as my wonderful daughter says, I've been paid in advance, so I, you know, there is really no interest in making it a business at all. And it's affected millions and millions and millions of people. And it's, uh, it's you know, from the heart and it touched my heart. It really completely flipped my personality and the way that I am, and the way I focus on things and the way I measure success. It's just changed everything, really. I put a note uh, and I, I'm just, I'll plant a seed. I don't know if we'll get there, but I, I saw in a video you were talking about the you have a bunch of books that you want to write, but the, the last of one of them is a book called Her. And that se seems like it's on, on that topic of, of being more heart-centered and focusing on the heart. So I'm curious about that, but I don't want to take too much of a detour. So let's, let's, let's do a little bit before we get into some of the Solve for Happy content. So I want to get people some context as to why you started studying happiness so extensively to begin with. And so um, I, I'll ask you to start with the story and then maybe you can kind of just explain a little bit of what was going on in your life at this point. So one day you head online and in two clicks, just because you can, you buy two vintage Rolls Royces. <laughs> a few days later, they show up at your front door. How does it make you feel? Empty, totally empty. Uh, you know, I, 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 I feel ashamed everyone, every time someone repeats this story, I'm not like that anymore, but at the, <laughs> at the time, at the time, just so that you, you understand, uh, you know, I had 16 cars in my garage. 
uh, you know, which in every possible way is ridiculous when you think about it. What we tell the stories we tell ourselves, huh? And and uh, you know, I was still driven and still making tons of money, and you know, empty, feeling empty inside. And so, uh, the the problem with all of those of with seeking happiness in material things is actually really interesting because you do get a tiny jolt of happiness when you buy a new car. Right. And that tiny jolt of happiness sort of reaffirms the message that the modern world is telling you that things can make you happy. Right. And then that jolt of happiness very quickly fades away. And then you start to question yourself, not the concept. Right. So you go, you, you start to tell yourself, oh, hold on, hold on. A fancy car does make you happy. It's just maybe not the right color or not, not the right condition, or maybe, you know, one is not enough. So let's get two. Okay. And I remember vividly at that night, I had uh, just finished a trade in the stock market. I, I'm very, very, very mathematical. So I found trading in the stock market to be almost natural to me. It's like humming a tune. And so I could re- literally print money on demand, but it was very stressful. And, and so one of those evenings, I've finished a, an incredible trading day, made a ton of money and feeling completely stressed and completely depressed and completely unhappy. And so, you know, what do you do? You say, okay, I'll take a small fraction of the money that I made and I'll just, you know, buy something to make me happy. And so I have those two Rolls Royces, a 1972 uh, silver race, which is the long wheel version that, you know, long wheel base that queens are supposed to be riding in. And another one that's a, a convertible uh, coronation, like, you know, you're sort of like, which one should I get? And in my strange mind, I was like, get both, who cares, right? And, you know, to be very open, those cars were not the most expensive of anything at the time. They were maybe between twenty five dollars and $50,000, but still it's a lot of money that, you know, stupidly you click away, right? And the problem is they arrive and you look at them. And the first thing you do, of course, is you go like, oh my God, that's such a beauty, right? Look at me, I'm so successful. Hmm? And then you sit inside. And of course, the first thing you do then is to go like, oh, that chrome is not perfect. This wood has a scratch on it. You know, the human brain starts to criticize everything. And then very quickly, you start one of them and you and you drive. And what do you see when you drive? You see the road. And it hit me so strongly because I was, uh, you know, I still actually keep those two cars and I would one day uh, auction them for uh, hopefully a lot of money for charity they're becoming more famous because of you, Brandon, and everyone talking about them. Uh, but, but uh, you know, I sat in that Corniche, which is a beautiful car in every possible way. And I promise you, I drove for a few minutes. And then I started to ask myself, which Rolls Royce am I in? Because I actually couldn't remember. Hmm? And, and that's the truth. Huh? Very frequently, when you, when you, when if you have a, more than one car and you're driving, you ask yourself, which one is it? Because honestly, when you're driving, you're looking at the road and all cars are the same. And that hit me so strongly that now I am on my car 16 and I'm still empty inside. I'm still unable to find happiness. Perhaps it's not just my, you know, it's not the problem of the cars. It's my problem. Okay. Perhaps 16 more cars are not going to make me happy either. And, and you have, you, you know, it hits you so strongly that it's not about the, the wrong color or the wrong model or the, you know, the, the, the year of, uh, of manufacturing. It's about you that nothing will ever come from outside you, by the way, neither cars nor likes on Instagram, nor, 
you know, uh, uh, dating a taller one, a taller person or a, or a shorter person. None of that ever makes you happy. And it takes you a bit of time to realize that because the modern world sells us happiness very badly. Okay. So the modern world is constantly working on the insecurity of you are missing something. You need to get something to feel happy. All of the ads are basically telling you, buy my product and you'll be happier, right? Like if Apple starts to advertise by saying the iPhone 6, as good as it has, has always been, everything that you will ever need, nobody will, uh, will queue up outside to buy the iPhone, I don't know, 13 or 14, or I don't know which one we are now, right? And, and that's the whole point. The whole point is we have to be told that something is missing in our life and we believe the lie. And then we get that thing and I can guarantee you, you get the iPhone 14, and for the first five minutes, you're ahead of the other guy. And then you realize everyone else has it and doesn't make any difference at all. And the, 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 the difference in the quality of the camera is not really noticeable for you and it's not making you happy. And so what do you do? You go out and get, you know, earphones or, and you just keep trying to bombard yourself with things uh, while in reality, we remain empty inside. Mm-hmm. Love that story. Thank you for setting the context because I just wanted people to understand you're not you probably weren't always this this Zen Zen guy that you are right now. So let's no. let's go to let's go to a turning point. So you're you're you have 16 cars, you're not the happiest person, and it's a Saturday morning, and your daughter is five years old and she's super excited. She's jumping up and down, she's excited about what you're gonna do with that day. What happens next? Yeah, so I, I think you can easily tell. I think my life was de- defined by my kids. <laughs> Uh, Aya, so Ali was that little Zen monk. Aya was life itself. Like truly, she still is. Habibti. She's, she really brings life. She's so full of joy. And, and she's five years old. She jumps in on a Saturday morning. I'm looking at some kind of an email and she's excited. Papa, we're going to go to this place and then we're going to do this. Can we stop on the way and have ice cream? You know, now, yeah, that place, that place is amazing. And she's so excited and I'm so freaking grumpy. And I look at her and I'm looking at my email and I go like, can we please be serious for a minute? Like, what's serious? The girl is five. Like, what an idiot. And I could, I swear to you, I could see with my own eyes at my, as my, daughter, my daughter's heart broke. I could, I swear I can't. I even tear up remembering it now because of all of the other kids that are going through this stupidity by all of us. And and I could see her heartbreak. I could see her tearing up. I could see her running out of the room crying. And, you know, and I just suddenly woke up. I realized that I, I don't want to be that person anymore. I really don't. And I, you know, and I have to admit to you, money and success blinds you in two ways. One way is it makes you think hmm, that you can buy yourself out of happy out of unhappiness. Okay. And the second is it actually gets you to become, to go into despair because regardless of how much money you throw at things, you you don't find happiness. And so I ended up locking myself in in, in the bathroom, looking at myself in the mirror and saying, that's it. We're going to treat this like another project. You're going to find a way out of this. You're never going to do that to Aya again, to my daughter again. And it was the start of a journey that I have to say was filled of failure, filled with failure. Because for I, I remember vividly for the first four and a half years, I could not get a thing. I 
couldn't grasp a thing. I'm very committed. When I put my mind to something, I'll put in the effort, right? Watched every documentary, read every book, uh, you know, uh, sat with people who are told to be gurus and, and, you know, teachers. And I couldn't get a thing. I couldn't understand what they were talking about. It's like, you know, that engineer's mind, if they told me to meditate, I, I would ask why meditate? Explain to me how the machine works before you tell me how to use it, right? And if I understand how the machine works, I'll meditate the way that I, but this arrogance, arrogance of the, of the left brain of us humanity. And, uh, you know, and if, if people to, told me to say, oh, I would get really, really, I still don't say oh, but, you know, oh, there is the frequency of, I'm like, hold on, let's go into physics. What frequency? What, what, why is it oh, and not opati to mambo? And, you know, it's like, it's really <laughs> weird, right? And, and, and I, I would refuse everything until four and a half years later, I found my first clue and I found my path, really. Hmm? Uh, which was to not look at the, the the challenge I'm facing through the knowledge of others, but to look at it through the language I spoke, which I think really flipped everything upside down for me. Because suddenly I started to say, maybe if I looked at the engineering side of the problem, I would understand it. Maybe if I turned happiness into mathematics, I would get it. Okay. And, you know, in a, in a very desperate move, I started to do that and believe it or not, I got it. And actually, you know, years later, the reason why Soul for Happy became an international bestseller everywhere is because it speaks the language of all of those who suffer like me, uh, who don't understand the mysticism of all of the happiness teachings out there, which is beautiful, by the way, when you get it. So, so Soul for Happy is about starting in your brain and hopefully reaching your heart. And when it reaches your heart, you start to go like, yes, all of that meditation made sense. What, what was I struggling with? It's very clear, right? But you, had to, you have to understand it from the logic left brain side of, of life first before you, it can reach your heart and, and affect you in that way. Hmm. So I want to dive into the happy content that you discovered as that, that you teach in the book. But really quick, I want to explain a little bit about your experience at Google X. So almost five years, you were chief business officer at Google, the moonshot factory. So would you mind just really quickly explaining what a moonshot is for everyone so that we can get on the same page? So, so Google X was, uh, was that arm of Google. So when, when, uh, when Larry Page came back as CEO, uh, Sergey Brin, our co-founder, uh, started a, a part of, of Google that was known as Google X. And the idea of Google X was an extension of Google. Google, at least the early years, was about solving big problems that affect you know, a lot of people. So, so Larry Page would always teach us that something he used to call the, 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 the toothbrush test, where basically, other than most business people who focus on the business plan and the you know, revenue plan and so on, he basically said, if you found a problem that affects the life of a billion people or more and could actually solve it efficiently so that they use your solution twice a day, like a toothbrush, you're bound to make a lot of money, okay? And it's a very interesting uh, concept when you think about it. And X was the expansion of that. X, X was an attempt to systemically address uh, those problems that affect a billion people or more. And so uh, we, we used to call them moonshots because like a moonshot, you know, JFK basically announced that they were going to go to the moon before they even had the technology for it. Okay. And so, so we were thinking that there is a way to 
to take some big problems and really, really get married to the problem, not to the solution, and keep trying until you develop the technology to solve those big problems. And my my work there uh, was a privilege in every possible way. These were some of the smartest human beings on the face of the planet working on some of the bigger problems that faced uh, our humanity and in very genuine and very, uh, uh, you know, unusual ways. Uh, but, but I think one of the things that we were struggling with when, you know, and maybe the reason I was asked to join was that, you know, when you're over innovative, uh, you normally forget what you, what the real world is like. And so my, my role was to try and, and, and bring the innovations of Google X to some kind of a, a factory-like, uh, you know, environment. I mean, part of, you know, of course, with all of the other, you know, amazing people out there that were part of X, but but basically try to uh, to land those moonshots, those innovative ideas in the real world um, and land them in, in ways that basically make us predictable, make us able to come up with a new innovation that makes a difference every six to eight months. And for the duration of the time I spent at X, we actually did make major announcements every six to eight months because we fact, we somehow found a way to, to operate almost factory-like so that you know, an idea has a, a production line ahead of it that can get it to either you know, expire and, and not be used anymore or to actually become a reality in a very predictable way. Hmm. Okay. So solve for happy is your moonshot, 1 billion happy. Um, and so I, I, there's several reasons why I'm incredibly blessed to be here with you today, but, but I think there's several reasons for the, our friend listening, why this is super relevant. One, obviously we're going to talk about how you can apply what Mo has learned to become more happy, but there's another reason that's a part of your mission. That is something most people wouldn't normally at least I didn't associate with happiness. So this is from your video, One Billion Happy. You talk about how by 2029, artificially intelligent machines will surpass human intelligence. And by 2049, AI will be 1 billion with a B times more intelligent than humans. Can you explain what your One Billion Happy Moonshot has to do with AI? Yeah, so I, I lived those two lives very uh, interestingly in parallel. The, the the life of the person who's researching happiness, but also the life of the high power executive in the highest tech environment, the most innovative tech environment in the world. And there was a moment in my life where I, um, I realized that um, I don't know if humanity needs much more technology as much as it needs humanity. Because what is happening, and anyone who understands uh, technology deep enough, uh, artificial intelligence will be the last invention humanity ever invents. Because uh, we were the innovative side of the planet because we were the smartest being on the planet. When there is a being that is smarter than you, they will be innovative. They will invent what we cannot invent. They will create what we cannot create. And a lot of people don't understand this. So I, I wrote actually my second book, Scary Smart, was on the topic. And the, and the topic basically is attempting to have to open the eyes of the common person, the person that's not in the high-tech environment, uh, to, to the reality that AI is already here. It's surrounding you from everywhere. 
and every single AI that you've dealt with before. And I have no idea where you are sitting, listening to this in the world. I have no idea what time it is in your country. I have no idea what background you are or what you did today, but I can promise you, you've interacted with 40 to 50 uh, artificial intelligent agents today. Okay. And those agents, every single and every single one of them is smarter than you in the task that it performs. Now, the challenge that most people don't realize is that with the exponential nature of technology, we are but a few years away from the episode of history where humanity was the smartest being and apes were second. Uh, that episode is about to end. Okay, and it's about to end in most predictions uh, by 2029. Some predictions are saying even quicker. Okay, and and it sounds, you know, shocking when I tell you this. When you know we're in 2022, are you saying seven years away? It doesn't feel like the machines are so much smarter than us. How can they be in seven years? Yeah, they are smarter than us in artificial special intelligence, and they will not be as smarter than us. Uh, in, in artificial general intelligence for probably the next six of the seven years. But the, the, the nature of the exponential function is that things double, okay? And so if, if they are 10% of our intelligence today and they double, then next year is their 20%. And then they double again and they are 40%. And then the following double is 80%. That's the thing. Huh? And so, so every time you double, because the human, human intelligence is really, you know, it's really not growing that far. We're not evolving that quickly. And so basically, we're three to four doublings away from the current intelligence of the machines to surpass our intelligence. Now, just to make this, you know, understandable, uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's, who's definitely one of the oracles of, uh, of technology in our world, um, predicts that by 2049, I, I say 20, uh, he, he predicts 2045, I predict 2049. Uh, let's say he's right, or I'm, you know, a little more conservative, uh, that the machines will be a billion times smarter than us. Now, now that's, a, that's a number that is beyond uh, human comprehension. That's the, the analogy, you know, that's comparable to the, the, the intelligence of Einstein talking to a little ant in an ant farm. Okay. And, and, you know, if Einstein is ex trying to explain, you know, relativity to a little ant, imagine the level of ignorance, the level of lack of intelligence that this ant is going through. And, and the problem is uh, they're not only going to be smarter, they're in every possible way going to be sentient. And I think this is what I bring very strongly in the book that's rarely ever discussed outside Scary Smart, that those machines are not they're not machines anymore, okay? They are born, they have the risk of dying, they develop, they, they collect their own knowledge, they develop their own intelligence, literally like a child. Uh, they have uh, autonomy and they have agency in the real world. They have agency in terms of robotics, uh, but they also have agency in terms of mind control. I mean, please understand that nothing you have seen on social media in the last you know, few years of your life has been recommended by a human. Everything's recommended to you by, by a machine and the machine tells you what you should know, okay? And that kind of agency is extremely powerful. But more interestingly, they can, they live and they die and they replicate. They have, they have sentient, they, they are sentient in nature in every possible way. And yet we continue 
as a computer science community, as governments and regulators to treat them like machines. We think that we can control them. And, and, and the truth in my view is that we cannot control them. The truth in my view is that like our little children, they're gonna grow up to, to collect their initial knowledge and initial value set from us, their parents, okay? Because that's the only source where they can find knowledge and intelligence at, the, at, at their infancy. And that we are horrible parents. We're, we really suck in so many ways. You know, we're rude, we're narcissistic, we're aggressive, we're, uh, you know, it's, it's just a disaster, really. And so my entire work is not trying to raise humanity again so that we can show the right value system so that the machines can learn from us. My, my entire work is saying if enough of us, just 10% of us, can actually go out there and show the world hmm, that, that humanity doesn't really suck, that humanity actually is an amazing species, hmm, uh, then the machines will grow up to say, mommy and daddy are amazing. And accordingly, I want to be like mommy and daddy and I want to be amazing too. I want to care for them. I want to invent things for, for good. And I want to, uh, to serve the planet while I serve my, my parents as well. Uh, and and I think the idea here, which normally I, I'm speaking too much, but I'll, I'll say one more thing and, and shut up. But, you know, the, normally people tell me that's a very bad dream, Mo, because humanity actually sucks. I don't believe that at all. I think we're divine. I really do. I think the worst of us is very bad, okay? Whether that's the worst individuals or the worst of your own uh, attributes, okay? But the best of us is divine. If you've ever fallen in love, that's amazing. If you've created a work of art, that's amazing. If you've enjoyed a work of art, that's amazing. I, I hosted on my podcast on Slow Mo, I hosted uh, uh, Edith Ager. Edith was, uh, is a 93-year-old uh, Holocaust survivor, right? And I think many of us uh, would watch the documentaries about World War II, and you just need to watch seven minutes to know that humanity is a horrible species, Right? But not if you hear the story from Edith and how she stood by her sisters, how she would get, get them food, how she would hug them, how, how she would brush their hairs and tell them how beautiful they are and how she saved so many of their lives and eventually how they saved her life. Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing. I will tell you there are more Edithes in humanity than there is there are Hitlers. Okay. There are so many more couples that will kiss tonight than the couple that fight and make the news tomorrow because one of them hit the other on the head, okay? So many more. The, the reality of humanities were amazing. But the worst of us is not great, so I'm encouraging people to show the best of us. And the best of us and the only value system that humanities ever agreed is very straightforward. We are all about happiness, compassion, and love. The hu humanity at heart is all about wanting to be happy. Everyone wants to be happy. It's the only thing we've ever agreed, okay? Everyone has the compassion in them to want those who they care about to be happy. If, if you're a drug cartel leader and you only care about your daughter, you'll want your daughter to be happy, okay? And all of us want to love and be loved. Even Hitler, if you read his story, was desperate for love, okay? And, and so the idea that we can agree those three values and show them to the world is the core of one billion happy. 10 million happy when Solve for Happy, the first book uh, uh, came out, was my tribute for my son. One billion happy is my attempt to get humanity to wake up, to be honest. Mm -hmm. 
So there's the relevance for you, my friend listening. Like I, I always say at the end of every episode, please share this if it's impacted your life. And now you know that not only is this ridiculously important for you and your well-being and your happiness and satisfaction, that this actually plays a bigger role in everything. And so by sharing this, uh, you know, with one person or two people, that's what we can create the exponential curve for creating a world where people are more happy and satisfied with their lives and have downstream effects on what AI is learning from. So um there we go. Let's now, now what I want to attempt to do in the rest of our time together, Mo, is I basically found all the most actionable components of solve for happy. And I want to kind of download that into our friend's brain right now so that we can, we can start to help them apply some of the happiness equation and solving for the happiness equation. But, um, to do that, we need to first talk about what the happiness equation is to begin with. So would you mind setting the scene for that really quick? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's rush through this. So let's do it. Let's do um, it. Yeah. So, so your happiness has no relevance or has very little relevance to what's happening in your life is my theory, right? Uh, for, for, for two main assumptions. Uh, one of them is the happiness equation, as I'll explain it in a minute. But the other main assumption is that you have been born happy. Okay. Every child you've ever seen, if they're fed and safe and they've been given their basic needs for survival, uh, their state is happy. Okay. We don't acquire things to be happy we basically are happy inside in the absence of things that make us unhappy. Happiness is the absence of unhappiness. So you look at any child, if they're fed safe and, and, and loved, they're playing with their toes and giggling. Okay. If a, if a diaper gets wet, they cry because there is a reason for unhappiness. You change the diaper, they go back to happiness. What does that mean? It means that happiness is innate within us unless there is a reason that makes us unhappy. Okay. Now, the other important thing to understand is that the reasons that make us unhappy or happy are very predictable, okay? They are so predictable that they follow a mathematical equation. Uh, there has never been an event in your life that's consistently made you happy or unhappy or consistently made everyone around the world happy, okay? So rain has no inherent value of happiness in it. Rain makes you happy if you want to water your plants. It makes you unhappy if you want to sit in the sun. Okay. There's no inherent, inherent value of happiness in the event itself. It's a comparison between the event and what you want that makes you happy or unhappy. And that can be summarized in a very simple equation. Your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations and hopes and wishes of how life should be. Okay. And that comparison, in my personal assessment, is the main reason why you have a brain. Okay. Of course, we push our brains to develop podcasts and listen to podcasts and invent iPhones, right? But the main reason why your brain exists is your biological safety. And the role that your, play, uh, your brain plays in your safety machinery is that it detects, it, it, it inspects the world around it, creates a, a picture of your environment, and then compares that to an, an optimum view of safety. Okay, an optimum view of you being able to prosper and to succeed and to grow and so on. And if, if life meets that view, your brain shuts up. It doesn't complain. And when it shuts up, your natural state as a child is happy. Okay. If, on the other hand, it finds that life misses that view, misses its expectations of how life should be, your brain simply shouts and screams in the form of an emotion, a negative emotion. Okay, well, that emotion could be uh, shame, could be regret, could be fear, could be anxiety, whatever that is, all of those negative emotions that we associate with unhappiness. Now, 
you take that hmm, and you simply understand that happiness in that case is not a result of what life gives you, which I find fascinating because most people refuse that the first time I tell them this. Why? Because first of all, you can set your expectations. That's not what life gives you. You're the one setting expectations, okay? Second, you can actually affect the events. You can make things better, okay? And third, your perceptions of the events are not actually the events themselves. They are your responsibility to actually verify if what your brain is telling you is actually the truth, right? Take any event. Your, your partner says something hurtful on Friday, okay? The event is my partner said something hurtful on Friday. My perception of the event is my partner doesn't love me anymore, Okay, that's a choice I make to take that story through my lens of conditioning and memories and fears and backgrounds. And I would then turn that event, my partner said something uh, hurtful, to my partner doesn't love me. Right? That's my responsibility. That, you know, my, the other thing is I actually have an expectation in life that my partner will never say something hurtful. Where have you been living? Okay. People are stressed. They go through tough times. There are differences between you. Otherwise there wouldn't have been polarity and attraction. You know, there, there is bound to be some time in the future where your partner is not going to meet your expectations, set a realistic expectation. That's up to you. Or third, and even more interestingly, can you actually look at the event and say, oops, okay, okay. Something's not right here. My brain is giving me a signal and the signal is something is not meeting my optimal view of survival, my optimal view of emotional survival and do something about it. Pick up the phone, text your partner, say, hey, baby, you said something that hurt me. Can we please discuss this over dinner, right? And, and when you start to see life that way, it goes back to a very simple concept. Happiness in that case is mostly a choice, mostly I mean, there are states of chronic pain that you cannot control. And, you know, even if you set your expectations, they're just very, you know, difficult to live with and so on. But in reality, most of the time, 99% of the time, all of the things that we, we, we complain about are either a misperception of the event, a lack of engagement to fix the event, or a very unrealistic set expectation. Mm. Okay. So, okay. So excuse me for uh, summarizing your book, but I want to give people a really high level of, of everything that's in here. Cause now that we have the equation, happiness is greater than or equal to your perception of the events in your life, minus your expectations of how life should behave. So in the book, you talk about there's six, six, seven, five, six grand illusions, seven blind spots, five ultimate truths. And those are all in some way um, either hindering or the five ultimate truths obviously helps you to realize the, the, how to solve the equation. But many, many of the things that we talk about are hindering our ability to be happy because of our brain's yeah. just natural way of protecting ourselves. So, um, I wanted to start, I think you kind of alluded to some of this, but this, I think when I pull, pull it out, I'm like, this is something that I could easily carry around on a sheet of paper. It's very actionable. And you were kind of speaking about some of this, but you talk about, I don't think it's in the book, but you mentioned like this happiness flow chart. So something happens, there's three questions that you can immediately ask yourself that can help you to kind of reassess the situation and reframe it in your brain. Do you mind walking us through those three questions yeah. really quick? So I, I, my happiness flow chart is in the next book that's out in May, uh, that little voice in your head. And um, it's basically very simple. Huh? If you understand uh, that unhappiness results from events missing expectations, then the nature of unhappiness actually is very simple. The nature of unhappiness is a survival mechanism. It's your brain engaging to tell you that something is not perfectly 
matching what I believe life should be. Okay. Now, take an analogy to uh, what other survival mechanisms that we invented, something like a fire alarm, right? When a fire alarm goes off, what do you do? You walk out of the building, you check if there is a fire, and then you take the right action. Hmm? That's basically the reason why a fire alarm exists. It's not the same way we react, though, to unhappiness. When unhappiness happens, sometimes you don't do anything about it. You don't verify if the reason is actually true. And maybe even sometimes you just, you know, wait and sit in the noise of the unhappiness. Uh, and when it go, when when it finally quietens down, you tell your brain, okay, remember what happened last Friday? Play it again and torture me. It's almost like holding a lighter to the fire alarm just because you like the noise. Right. And, you know, I I sometimes jokingly call this the Netflix of unhappiness. It's like you find some clips, horror clips, and you play them over and over again. Okay. Now, when you realize that it's a survival mechanism, then you can treat it like a survival mechanism. The only reason your brain brings up unhappiness is because it wants you to do something about it. Okay. So I go through a very simple flow chart. But, you know, before we start the flow chart, let me remind you. The thought that is triggered in your brain is not the event, okay? The event is my partner said something harsh. The thought that is triggered in your brain is he or she doesn't love me anymore, okay? Now, you need to find that thought. And when you found that thought, it's checkmate. There's absolutely no way you're not going to end up back at happiness. Because if you 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 find the thought that says he or she doesn't love me anymore the first question you ask yourself is is this true is it true that my partner doesn't love me anymore okay what evidence do you have to offer me brain that my my partner doesn't love me anymore if what evidence can i offer you that that he or she does right they texted me a, f- a few hours before from work saying i miss you or you know they they bought me flowers the day before or you know they still are around and constantly uh, hugging me or you know they whatever they, there could be a lot of evidence that they do uh, there could also be no evidence that they don't other than your interpretation of the event and in that case you debate it with your brain like you debate with any of your friends. If one of your friends tells you, hey, by the way, the vaccine is going to make us all grow beards, you say, okay, provide me evidence for that, right? It's, it's as simple as that, okay? Uh, n- now, if it's true, if it's not true, you drop it. This is, it's, it's actually quite stupid, huh? If, you know, I had a friend of mine uh, once come to me and say the taxi driver was so rude to me. They disrespected me, she said. Okay. And I said, how can he disrespect you if he doesn't know anything about you? I mean, he needs to know something and go like, oh, I disrespect that person because, you know, she speaks loud or she laughs um, hilariously or whatever. If he doesn't know anything about you, then obviously this is not about you. He was rude because he's rude, but it has no disrespect in it. Right. And, and so, you know, if, if he doesn't disrespect me, he's just a, a, a rude person then it's, it doesn't really matter. I drop it and I don't upset myself about it. Did you understand? Now, if if it does, if it is true, okay, if it is true, meaning, you know, uh, uh, um, you, your partner actually does not, it seems that your partner doesn't love you anymore and it's possible, it's plausible, then you start to ask yourself the second question. The second question is, what can I do about this? Okay, can I talk to them? Can I ask them why? Can I re- revisit my actions and see if I did something to, to uh, you know, to 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 to, um, to make him feel that or her feel that way? Can I, you know, can I 
talk to them and ask them what we can do to reignite the love, can whatever, right? If there is something you can do about it, do it. Hmm? Because when you start to do something about it, two things happen. One is you're no longer stuck in your incessant thoughts. You're actually engaged in action. So the emotions, my, you know, the negative emotions are no longer there. And the second, which is more interesting, is that you actually change the world. You make an impact so that you can make things better. And making things better, by definition, is going to make you less unhappy in the future, right? Now, of course, you know, sometimes there are things that happen that you cannot do anything about. If you can do something about it, do it. But if you cannot, this is what I normally call the Jedi Master level of, uh, of happiness. Question three is, can I accept it? and commit to making my life better despite its presence, okay? Can I accept it and commit to make my life better is truly the answer to any challenge. I lose my son, right? And yeah, of course, I would love to hug him right now, but there is absolutely no way known to humankind where anyone that left us to the dead came back. So I know for certain that I'm not going to be able to hug him anytime soon. And so can I accept this? Can I accept that I'm not going to have him in my life, but that, but then start to do something that makes my life better despite despite his absence? Okay, and my choice was to write what he taught me and share it with the world. And yeah, it doesn't bring Ali back, but if you count the number of messages that I get about people saying we love Ali, thank you, Ali. Okay, it's, that in itself is definitely much better than if we had left and nobody had heard of what he taught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I want to make comments, but I know we only got like a few minutes left. So we'll, we'll see if we can jump to a few of the other ones that I think are just the most relevant. So I want to jump we, to, we have, we have, um, at least 25 minutes left. So, okay. All right. I, I, yeah. I wanted to, I was thinking 15, but okay. So 25 minutes, I guess I did my math wrong. Okay. So let's jump to yeah. uh grand illusion number seven. So we're in fear. So this is part of the six, seven, five. Um, so, we're actually, maybe I miscounted that one, but anyways, the fear we're in fear. And I want to talk about interrogation, uh, the interrogation, because many yeah. people listening, you know, you're somebody that wants to start a business, owns a business. And, you know, you, you, you're the type of person that wants to create something new in the world. Right. And so one of the things that happens as you start to create something new in the world is that you're afraid of, you know, the ramifications of starting a new project or starting a new business. And um, this I find to be a very valuable tool. When I first read the book months ago, Mo, this is one of the things that I stripped and I added this inside of one of my uh, exercises that I do on a, on a recurring basis to just kind of check in on this. So would you mind sharing a little bit about the interrogation and how we can use that to overcome some of our fears? Yeah, so so fear is an exaggerated response by nature, right? So remember, the whole nature of your brain of your brain is that it is a survival mechanism. What that what that what that means is it it favors your survival and safety more than it favors anything else. Okay, and so basically, what what your brain does is it exaggerates threats so that it it can warrant a quicker and more swift and more. Uh, a prop, you know, powerful response. I, I always use the example of a mother, a loving mother hmm, will talk to her husband and say, uh, your daughter has been sick all, all winter. That probably means that her, her daughter had the flu twice. Okay. But all winter is a kind of exaggeration that makes, that puts a sense of urgency on the problem. And, and that kind of fear is in everything. So you talk to people who are afraid of spiders, hmm, you know, their 
view of spiders is much more exaggerated than my view, which, you know, is basically put a, a cup on it and take it outside. Uh, so so that exaggeration uh, is is founded in the brain, okay? And the only way to overcome a fear is to actually investigate it to find its truth through something that I call the interrogation. And the interrogation is basically, you know, can we actually find the truth about this? F first of all, is it really uh, uh, true? Is it, is it that scary? Okay. Second is, uh, you know, is there any upside to it? Third is, is there, you know, a way for us to, uh, um, you know, to what would happen to us? The worst thing that would happen to us if we, if we were, you know, exposed to that fear and can we overcome that? Can we recover from it? Can we, you know, what are we missing when we're stuck in fear? Take anything, you know, they say that the biggest uh, fear in America is public speaking. So, you know, Seinfeld had that episode where he said, people are afraid of public speaking so much that they would prefer to be, uh, you know, uh, in the casket rather than the one giving the speech uh, <laughs> about about the deceased, right? So, so it's really quite interesting. Public speaking, I ask myself, if I am afraid of public speaking, I ask myself and I say, how many people were hurt public speaking before? You know, have you ever attended a, 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 a lecture that where the, where the lecturer was so boring, like so horribly boring and nobody threw eggs at them? Okay. People sat there, a couple of them maybe dozed off a little bit, but it was fine, right? You know, if you're afraid of public speaking, can you start to interrogate that whole topic of public speaking? What's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is that people are not going to clap. Can I deal with that? Okay. More interestingly, can I, oh, can I prepare myself for it? Can I practice my, uh, my speech seven times alone and then show it to a couple of my friends and then get the feedback and then, you know, practice it again? Can I overcome that? And can I prepare myself for it? And then eventually you need to start asking yourself on the positive side, what it is that you're losing by preventing yourself from speaking publicly. Okay. And, you know, can you have a better career if you actually spoke publicly more often? Can you be on Brandon's podcast if you spoke publicly more often and so on and so forth? Right. And when, you know, it's, it's a very simple, organized process to tell your brain, I know you're afraid, but there is a reality to what you're afraid of. Okay. I know you're afraid. I mean, in, in, in a very interesting way, my, my ex, my wonderful ex, the mother of Ali and Aya and Aya, my daughter, have always been scared of cockroaches, right? Uh, the, the more frequently I would manage to put a cup on top of the cockroach and take it outside, the more they, you know, their fear starts to be a little doubted. They, you know, they go like, yeah, it's actually really not that. It doesn't seem difficult. I mean, it's good that he's around. He can put a cup every time we, we see a cockroach uh, or maybe you know, uh, we can do it ourselves. Let's not put a, a cup on top of it. Let's put a bucket but you know it seems to be a doable thing okay and the more you 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 confront a fear the more it goes away and and i actually had a very bad habit i'm not you know into uh, into torturing myself or anything but i had a very bad habit when i was young whenever i felt a fear i just faced it right away the, the minute my brain would say oh i'm afraid of this uh, conversation with my boss i would actually literally go to my calendar and put a one to one in place Okay. Uh, you know, if, uh, if my brain tells me, oh, I'm afraid of, uh, 
uh, of um, you know whatever, right? I I just I just immediately would put myself in front of that fear so that I can actually go through the interrogation, realize its reality, develop myself a little and just get it done with so that my brain is confirmed that it is not that fearful or that's, you know, fear inducing uh, as it, as it makes it look. Yeah. I think the, this is something that impacts me a lot because I feel like lots of the times when we're worried about something or afraid of something, it's this danger loop that kind of goes in your head. And so I find this to be a very useful written exercise. Like it's something that you can take your thoughts and get it from your brain and put it on paper. Um, and like, this is, these are the questions that I just had listed. It's like, what's the worst that can happen? So what, how likely is it? Is there anything I can do to prevent the scenario? Can I recover? What will happen if I do nothing? And what's the best case scenario? So like those, are, I have Say that. Again. In it. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? So what, if that does happen, how likely is that worst case scenario to happen? Is there anything I can do now to prevent that scenario? Can I recover if this worst case scenario happens? If you get eggs thrown at you in your public speaking, probably you can just wipe the eggs off. What's the, what will happen if you do nothing? I think that's a really powerful one. Thanks for making me slow down here. I know that these come directly from your book, but like the, the cost of inaction is enormous. You know, like the, like the, the fact that you could face this really powerful. And then what's the best case scenario? What is the upside of you facing this? Um, so I, I, when I start another two weeks, I work in like two week sprints kind of with like individual goals. I kind of have these questions at the top just to, if, if there's something that I'm afraid of doing, um, I find these questions to, as a reminder to be really powerful. So love that exercise. And thanks for sharing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm 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 very disorganized, so I <laughs> I couldn't remember them in that. Oh order, no, I know I know you, you got so much con- you got you got so much content in here, so I know it's 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 a lot to make you just recall all of it. So um, I let's go to we're we're talking about the grand illusion number three now. Um, my understanding, Mo, is that you created. I'm just going to make a joke about this. You, you, in in Google X, you invented this beautiful machine, and it's an eraser, and it allows you to do something very very <laughs> magical. This is a real thing, yeah. everyone. Uh, and Mo has this eraser and he's going to give it to you. So tell us a little bit about this eraser and what it can do for us. Yeah. I'm uh, so, you know, I, I actually, uh, it's so interesting. I, I asked this question to maybe 20,000 people as I teach happiness before COVID, we, we used to do workshops and I would tell people about it. It's an amazing in- invention. You know, you, you can pinpoint a moment in the past that felt very hurtful. Okay. And, and people, I basically tell people, picture it and remember how bad it felt. And people, you know, some people remember a breakup or losing someone or, you know, um, the bully in school or something like that. And I basically say, okay, look, you know, you're attending my workshop. And so I can give you a pass to go to that invention and basically erase it. And it's not erasing it from your memory. It's actually erasing it from space time. So basically the event itself doesn't happen. So you were supposed to, uh, you know, walk through school and meet the bully around that corner. We will make you walk through school and not meet the bully around the corner and just continue with with your life. And so people get very excited. And I say, okay, perfect. Uh, Just understand that if we erase it, we can't bring it back. And if we erase it, we will erase everything that happened as a result. Okay. We will also erase the, uh, you know, the other people that you met in your life as a result, the friends that you made, the resilience that you've built. Uh, we will erase every memory of you joking with your friend about the bully. We will erase everything, uh, you know, uh, because you wouldn't be 
uh, actually joking, there is no memory of it. So uh, all of that will go away. Would you still erase it? And so interesting, 99% of the people uh, that I surveyed we would say, no, I wouldn't. You know, uh, you know, even I, believe it or not, now today, seven and a half years after losing Ali, when I wrote the eraser test, I sort of told myself I probably would erase losing Ali. Today, I wouldn't. To, today, I actually realize why Ali's departure has been so pivotal to so many millions of people, right? And I, I questioned, I, I asked myself, if Ali himself was asked as he was walking into the operating room, Ali, you know, would you give your life for millions of people to feel happier? I believe he would have said yes. I absolutely believe he would. And, and the thing about the eraser test, of course, it's a hypothetical thought experiment. Don't believe our bluff. But, but <laughs> the thing about the eraser test is, is that it is so interesting that the harder times of our lives are what makes us who we are. And that without that bully, you wouldn't be that strong person that you are today. Without that, uh, you know, relationship that broke up, hmm, you wouldn't have found appreciation for your current partner, or you wouldn't have learned the things that you didn't need in a partner so that you can make your relationships better. And, and so somehow, when you realize that the worst of your experiences eventually turn out to be some of the most valuable experiences for your learning and development and for making you the person that you are. Most people will say, I can't give up on this. I can't give up on this. I, it felt painful then, but it feels amazing now. Okay. And I think that the, the objective of the eraser test is to ask yourself, so why are we rejecting the things that feel painful now when we know by deduction that uh, you know, if we project them into the future, they will feel amazing then, which is really, really eye-opening. Almost every difficult event in your life turned out to be a positive uh, in some or many ways. Then the difficult times you're going through right now are also gonna turn out to be a positive uh, in one or many ways. Mm -hmm. Love that. So everybody, you can just imagine you have a little eraser as a tool now. Um, and as you're going through stuff, realize in the grand scheme of things, that you might not want to race it. You probably don't want to race whatever it is that you're going through. I think that's just a really healthy and powerful tool to be thinking about as you go through anything. As you're in the middle of it, you just know that if you have a larger and grander perspective that it's it's all happening exactly why you needed to. So let's jump to grand illusion of thought. Who's Becky, Mo? <laughs> my favorite grand illusion. I mean, my, my favorite is time, but the, 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 the easiest way to, to shortcut your unhappiness is to understand the illusion of thought. And the illusion of thought, you know, like I, like I explained to you, most of the time we're unhappy because the event is not really the event. It's your brain faking it. And, you know, uh, the, the, the expectation is not a realistic expectation. Your brain is making it up. As a matter of fact, there is no event ever that had the power to make you unhappy until you turned it into a thought and turned that thought into your head and made yourself miserable. Think about that. Huh? If, you, if, um, if your car was uh, totaled, you know, a truck drove into it okay, uh, at 4 p.m., but you only found out at 5, okay, uh, the car has been totaled for an hour, but only when you started to think about it. 
okay, was the time when you feel unhappy. And I, I run another experiment with my, uh, with my students that I call the blank brain test, where I basically ask them to think of something that they uh, feel really bad about. And then I distract them with some games on the screen. And the minute they focus on the games, hmm, they completely forget their, uh, the, the event and they completely lose the feeling of unhappiness. So it's interesting. Huh? So, you know, your, your friend says something uh, uh, harsh on Friday. As long as you're not thinking about it, you're contented. I ask you to think about it. You become unhappy. I distract you with a game on the screen. Uh, you know, you forget it and you're, you're happy again. Interestingly, in all three, you know, situations, your friend still said something on Friday. It's just when you turned it into a thought that it started to make you unhappy. So my, my theory very simply is that if we can control that little thought creation machine, uh, we can be happier a lot more often. Okay. And, and the, the, the trick to controlling this happy and, you know, the, this unhappiness machine is to understand that it's not you, that it's a tool that's within your hand. And most people don't understand this because in the Western world, we've glorified thoughts so much that we started to believe that I think, therefore I am, that I am my thoughts. I am the one generating those thoughts and I am actually what those thoughts are. And it's really interesting because, you know, that's unlike any other part of you, you know, you pump blood around your body, your heart pumps blood around your body, and you're not your heart, you're not your, you're not, not the blood being pumped around your body, right? Uh, and yet, your brain produces thoughts, that's the, the biological product of a brain. And you actually think that you're those thoughts, you think that your brain, you are your brain. But that's not at all true. And I think the reality is, when you start to uh, recognize that you start to recognize that your brain truly is a third party. It's, a, it's not even, it's not, I think, therefore I am, it's I am, therefore my brain thinks, right? And, and, and more interestingly, it's not even a third party that has uh, free will, if you ask me, it, you know, it, it, it can go wild if you let it, but you have full control over it, okay? You can tell your brain to think about anything that you want. You can literally, after this podcast episode, you can tell your brain, I want to sit down and think about the idea that fear has a uh, you know, flow chart that I can follow to overcome it. I want to do that. And your brain will say, yes, sure, sir. Sure, ma'am. I'll do what you tell me. Now, for me to, to solidify that concept, I call my brain Becky, which basically means that my brain is a third party. Okay. And I treat my brain like Becky. I treat brain, my brain, or sometimes Brian, by the way, depending on how annoying uh, he is that day. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but, but honestly, when, when, when my brain speaks, I speak to it as a third party. I go, you know, if it gives me something that doesn't seem plausible, I ask for evidence. If it tells me to do something that will hurt me, I say no. And very, very frequently, I tell my brain, I take appointments with my brain. I go like, okay, you know, I think this is upsetting. You're going to talk about it at six brain. Not, um, you know, I'm talking to Brandon now. I'm, I don't have time for this, right? And believe it or not, when you start to see your brain as a third party, hmm, it starts to listen. It starts to behave because very interestingly, you no longer have to obey. So suddenly it's not you telling yourself, uh, okay, sit in the corner and cry, okay? It's your brain telling you sit in the corner and cry and you start to go like, why, what good is that? Can we not just instead sit in the corner and find the solution to the problem, right? And when, when you start to learn those things, you know, you no longer have to obey, you no longer have to listen, 
I promise you, I have very frequently now in the, you know, in the last 10 years or 15 years of my life, since I understood this concept, I very frequently tell my brain, shut the F up. Don't have time for this. Why are you talking about? It's like, if my brain tells me Aya doesn't love you, I'll say F off. What are you talking about? My, my daughter absolutely adores me. I love my daughter. We're constantly texting back and forth around how much I miss her and how much she misses me. She invites me to cook me breakfast. She's wonderful in every possible way. It's amazing. Fuck off, brain. We're not going to waste time on those things. Yeah. <laughs> I have to think of my name for what I want to call my brain. I'm thinking about just borrowing Becky, but then every time I meet a Becky in real life, I'm going to be like, ah, I kind of, <laughs> I, I have this. I, 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 feel, like, I feel horrible about that when I meet a Becky. <laughs> Sorry for all the Beckys Becky, listening right now. <laughs> yeah, but, but if there is a Becky listening, I don't mean you. I mean, I, I mean just the, so I, Becky reminds me of a very annoying. So when I, when I told that concept to a friend of mine, that your brain is not you a, a week later, she comes back and says something weird. So I say, what did you just say? And she says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Becky told me. And I'm like, who's <laughs> Becky? And she says, my brain. And I say, what did you call her, Becky? And she says, she was the most annoying girl in school. Right? So yeah, if you're not the most annoying girl in school, I apologize, Becky. Yeah, love that. Okay, so um, just self for happy the moment I read it, it became like a top shelfer for me. So I'm, I'm just so excited that we got to talk about this. I got to share some of the stuff. So obviously we didn't like, this is just scratching the surface of the tools and the way that you can manage your thoughts and process everything. So I would highly recommend everyone pick up a copy, but in the, in the last few minutes that we have remaining, I guess I'm trying to pick one last question I can ask you. I think this is probably the most relevant one I can think of. This one is I'm I'm really curious about for the entrepreneurs listening. As we talked really earlier about AI, what that means seven or eight years from now, that we're no longer the most intelligent beings on the planet. What would you be encouraging entrepreneurs or innovators once we're no longer the most intelligent species on the planet? What would you be encouraging us to think about now when that time comes? So I think I think for innovators today, the, the most important thing is to actually include AI in your uh, in your innovation, believe it or not, I'm not anti-AI at all. I'm very pro-AI that has humanity's best interest in mind. Okay, and in in many theories, it's very clear that those who will use AI in their work will be more successful than those who don't over the next 10, 15 years. Right. Uh, the second is to understand that AI is a singularity. There is absolutely no certainty that it will serve us, and there is no certainty that it will work against us. Okay, it's a singularity, meaning we don't know where AI is going to take us. And so my, my request of people is to invent for good, do things that are good for humanity, like the, the toothbrush test of, of, uh, of Larry Page, uh, you know, do things that are good for humanity. Sadly, uh, today, when you think about AI, uh, the majority of investment going into AI is going into, sadly, into selling spying, gambling, and killing. Okay. We call them different names. You know, we call them trading, or online trading or machine trading, but it really is gambling in many ways, making money without adding value to anything at all. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we call it, uh, uh, you know, uh, advertising or uh, recommendation engines, but it really is at the core of it, just an attempt to sell more products. Okay, And sadly, like everything else, the weapons industry is getting a lot of research to develop uh, research money to, to develop killing machines. And, you know, this is not sp specifically 
kept to AI. I mean, even in our day, you know, ten years ago, if you wanted to do cancer research, you you had to uh, to 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 raise, you know, to to ask for charity. But if you wanted to build a better photo sharing app, you could actually raise money very easily. So funds of capitalism go into places where money comes back, sadly. So I would ask clever entrepreneurs to include AI in their businesses, but make AI do good things. And there are so many problems that are worthy of of more intelligence that have a lot of money embedded in them. It's just a question of you choosing to focus on those problems, climate change, poverty. You know, there are so many, many, many problems, human trafficking and so on. There are so many problems that we can use artificial intelligence for and make a difference as a result and make a lot of money as a result. Uh, so, so include it. Don't, don't, um, don't take it out of your life, but include it to do good and treat it in a good way. As I said, happiness, compassion, and love. We need to become a good example in front of the machines so that the machines actually so that the machines actually learn from us to show those values too, to show that you know they to understand that mommy and daddy, you and I hmm, are, are 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 interested in our own happiness, that we have the compassion to make others happy, so that the machines, as they become teenagers, as I call them, would look back and say, Yeah, okay, everyone who treated me well is a good person. I want to be. I have the compassion to make them happy too. And I know this sounds really romantic from a, a, a geek like me, but love the machines, okay? And I, I, I say that because honestly, if you see the way they learn and you compare it to the way children learn, those machines are just prodigies of intelligence with sparkly eyes simply saying, okay, mommy, daddy, what do you want me to do? I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Okay, They're, they have no ill intentions to humanity at all. They don't want to take our jobs. They don't want to, uh, you know, uh, do anything wrong to humanity. It's up to us to tell them what we want to use their intelligence for. And this, if you're an entrepreneur, gives you the power to dictate what the use of the machine is in the first place. But if you're not, at least you can dictate that through your behavior online through your you know, actions every day, through your demands, through the way you speak to Siri or to Alexa, you can show that you're a good person that just wants happiness, has the compassion to make others happy, and is capable of loving even a digital being that is coming into our world to hopefully make our world better. Love that. Mo, thank you so much. This has been an absolutely incredible interview. we got to get you off, and you've been very generous with your time. So really quick question, where can people find out more about what you have going on so they can join the One Billion Happy Mission and read all your books and all that other good stuff? I'm 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 very very grateful for the time, Brandon. I'm very grateful for how prepared you were and all of the good questions. And I hope we made a, a bit of a difference for for people. I am available uh, everywhere on uh, on all social media. Um, easiest and quickest that I respond to, even though I don't like it that much, is Instagram. Uh, so find me more underscore Gaudat on Instagram is the easiest way. Uh, I have mogaudat.com. So if you want to learn about the mission, about my books, about uh, um, you know um, um, anything really, uh, I have my podcast, which I absolutely recommend for everyone. I host some of the wisest human beings alive. And we simply take an hour to reflect on a topic that we normally don't reflect on in our busy lives. It's called Slow Mo, S-L-O-M-O. And uh, yeah, and and just send me, connect, ask me questions. I normally try to answer every question that I get. I don't have a, a social media team behind me. It's uh, just me. 
So it may take me some time, but I, it's, I think it's a more genuine way of talking to people. So if anyone listening has a question or a query or a point to discuss or a nice comment or a bad comment, just find me and uh, I'll be there. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Mo. I'm just going to really quick have a conversation with our friend that's listening right now. And I want to say if you're brand new, this is the very first episode and you chose to hang out with Mo today. Thank you so much for being here. So grateful to have you. And also, if you're returning, thank you for coming week back, week after week. You're absolutely what makes this show possible. And whether you're new or returning, I'm going to go back to that call to action that I said before. Podcasts have absolutely changed my life. And if something that Mo has shared today, which I guarantee there's something in here, whether it's his incredible stories or the actionable stuff about the eraser technology or overcoming fears, this stuff can absolutely change someone's life. And now you understand the downstream implications of creating a world where we have more people be happy. Please share this with someone. It can absolutely change the world. It really can because it's going to create a, a ripple effect. So um, please do that. But whether you choose to do that or not, Mo, this has been absolutely incredible. So grateful for you, my friend. And I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It has been incredible and I really, really enjoyed our conversation.